Steve Cooper and welcome to another Rank Success podcast. This is an intro uh, for my main podcast, which is uh, an interview with the Chief Constable of Humberside Police, Lee Freeman. And uh, the reason I got jumped in my car the other day and drove up to, to Hull headquarters up in Humberside was because recently uh, the HMIC uh, Peel inspections uh, were released in which uh, Humberside has come out with outstanding grades out of six out of nine um, uh, categories including outstanding for culture uh, and I've always I've been interested I've done blogs I've written uh, and I've, I've had podcasts and videos before around turnaround the nature of you know leaders turning around organizations and what goes into that and the leadership approach to doing that and taking people with you and uh, Lee Freeman has been the chief constable of Humberside uh, since he was appointed in 2017 and at that time the force was in special measures they were the bottom of 43 police forces morale was low and in that time since then um, he has gone out, adopted a leadership approach uh, that has resulted in the recent grade. So over five years, he has turned around, together with the efforts uh, and contributions of 4,000 officers and staff, the performance of that force to where it is now. He describes that as, and the current position, as a, a kind of checkpoint and not a destination. So it's a work in progress. Um, in the blog, or sorry, in the podcast, we talk about... Um, culture the leadership approach uh, we talk about well-being um, promotion uh, in in Humberside and the fact they've just had you know a high success rate we talk about the difference you know between you know, interviews or assessment and, and uh, the chief constable's views on that um, the value placed on federated ranks by him in terms of the leadership culture of the organization and boiling down to the quality of first line supervision uh, the initiative, the innovative approach uh, of the scheme Right Care, Right Person, uh, which has been pioneered at Humberside to reduce uh, the incidence of mental health attendances and uh, for mental health episodes and non-police calls, if you like, and this partnership with uh, the health uh, services to bring about a reduction uh, in police attendance incidences which has resulted in freeing up around a thousand plus um, uh, officers an hour, uh, a month um, so that's quite interesting and as I say the the whole approach up there in number so is something that inspired me to jump in the car drive up from Devon where I live to interview the chief constable and we talk about a number of things and uh, he's a, a warm engaging inspiring individual and uh, you know I hope you enjoy the podcast uh, obviously I've brought back some leadership insights and uh, information to support and to inspire and to respectfully provoke your thinking around the topic and the nature of promotion so if you are someone who's going for promotion please enjoy the podcast but if you want to hit the ground running right now and take a quantum leap forward with your promotion preparation um, you can download a, a digital toolkit bespoke for sergeant 
uh, or inspector, chief inspector from Rank Success. There's a promotion masterclass video, or you could come on one of my live promotion masterclasses uh, in future. Have a look at the site, ranksuccess.co.uk, and I'll bow out of this now. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and until then, take care and stay safe. Hi, Steve Cooper, and welcome to another Rank Success Leadership Podcast. Um, Today, my guest is Lee Freeman, who is the Chief Constable of Humberside Police. Uh, Good morning, Lee. Good morning. And thank you for setting aside the time in your your busy schedule uh, today to come and talk about some of the questions that I've posed to you. And uh, I just wanted to start for the purpose of listeners, really, with, you know, from their perspective, if they're listening in, it's not very often they get a chance to listen to a chief constable. So um, I've got some questions here. Um, you happy for me to start and just go through them? Yeah. Okay, so when you were appointed as a chief constable, what, what were your goals? Um, so I was appointed in uh, May 2017. Um, the force was in special measures um, at, at that stage. Um, common term used by the the media, so it's Police Performance Oversight Group, which Mm -hmm. is following uh, peel inspections where there's perhaps causes for concern. And so Humberside was in that position. Um, So the goals were obviously to to turn the force around. Um, Primarily, that's got to be about the service that you give to the public. Um, The relationship that the force had with the public um, they would describe it as disconnected. The force had, like a lot of forces, primarily driven through austerity, I think, um, had gone to a what they call a whole force model, a thematic matrix model, etc. Um, it wasn't working. Um, I'd previously been a, an assistant chief in Lincolnshire, um, where I'd been involved in unpicking that sort of model and putting it back to a place-based one one that probably a lot of your um, listeners will recognise. And that was sort of the primary goal really, was to get the force back on an even keel where the public had lost trust and confidence in the force. Um, Partners had described losing trust and confidence in the force and felt disconnected from it. Um, And probably just as importantly, particularly for your listeners, the staff, Um, the staff felt disconnected from the force as well, um, and you said you said Lee that they, when you took over they were they were angry and they felt unsupported and unlistened to and undervalued. Um, culture starts at the top, and when we spoke, when we exchanged some messages, you said that if I could come up and talk to you about performance, which is what I want to talk about as well, um, you said yeah, but I want to talk about culture and leadership as well because they come before yeah. um, before performance. So, you know, what needed to change, and how did you address that within Humberside? So the first thing to do was, was before you start jumping to solutions, was for me to spend about six weeks going around uh, and just listening to people uh, and building up you know, my understanding of what people felt were the main issues. What deciding to apply to be a Chief Constable um, is a big step, a really big step. Um, and the decision that I eventually took in order to put in for it and everything that comes with that in terms of a sort of public profile and the exposure etc you know you wouldn't be human if you didn't feel a sense of vulnerability about taking that sort of leap 
Um, I'm from the area. Um, I'm born and bred in Grimsby. Uh, there's people in this organisation that I went to school with. Uh, it was very personal to me um, growing up in the area. Um, and it is an area that if you're from, it sometimes self-deprecates in any industry, public and private sector. Um, particularly if you're from Grimsby, uh, you know, people, I've grown up and people constantly take the mickey when, the, <laughs> if it's not just about the rubbish football team, it's, it's, it's about the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there, hasn't, there wasn't a long history in, in Humberside, I think it's fair to say, of, of excellence and a muscle memory of thinking that you could actually be as good as anywhere else. And that's in the DNA of the area sometimes as well, in all honesty, it's very self-deprecating. Although there's a real pride here um, by people being from East Yorkshire and, and, and sort of North East Lincolnshire and North Lincolnshire. So when I took over um, and listened to the staff, they identified five themes to me. Um, and I've jotted them down because I, I got in front of me, this was a, a what I called an interim plan that I, I wrote to HMIC way back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I were to give that plan to anybody in the organisation now, they would still recognise it. Because the five things that the staff said to me that needed to change from their perspective was they needed the force to reconnect with them. They wanted a leadership that they felt valued, supported and listened to them. And the most important thing, because of the history of the force, was when you do change, can you do it with us? Because we actually do know our jobs. Um, Now, one of the biggest things that I got my head around was I had, I had this initial fear about taking on the responsibility. Well, can you actually do this? Uh, uh, and the key moment for me was realising that I don't need to know all the answers to all the questions. I just don't. All I need to do is a bit like multiple choice, is create a culture where I've got 4,000 staff. So if I want to change how the force control room operates, who do I go and speak to? I don't act up a temporary chief inspector, stick them in a project room and wait for them to come out six months later and go, I've got a plan, which I have seen previously in my policing career, and all the staff go, where does that come from? You actually engage with the dispatchers, the call takers, the force incident managers in there, the inspectors, and say, okay, what are the key things that you can see, because you've been here 10, 15, 20 years, if we want you to improve the way you answer calls and assess and manage vulnerability at the first point of contact, what are the things that need to change here? And realising that actually I don't have to know all the answers because I'm not an expert. Is I could I possibly know force control rooms better than the people in there? Enabled me to go, yeah, I think, I think we can do this. So the culture is absolutely critical. So the people wanted to see a force that reconnected with them as well as the public. They described that they wanted uh, a leadership that they trusted. So one of the first things I said to the staff when I met them was, don't trust me, actually, be sceptical, because I would be, because I've had it all before, Um, and judge on our actions, not words. But we are going to change things here. But be sceptical until you see them being changed. And I I, I think that disarmed a lot of people who were very frustrated and disengaged by a change model that hadn't worked. and the National Police Federation surveys demonstrated that. I mean, the force had 99.5% of constables, sergeants, inspectors, and chief inspectors in the previous three national pay morale surveys described homicide morale as low or very low. It was 43 out of 43 mm. at that juncture. And that's where the anger came from. Mm. So the workforce also talked about they wanted to feel valued and supported. 
And by that, that's not chief constables actually, because how what defines your culture and your well-being and your performance is the quality of your face line supervision and management. And in particular for police officers, if we be police officer centric, it's your sergeants and your inspectors who define the culture. So I'm only ever going to be successful in changing the force if I can get a cohort of sergeants and inspectors who believe and buy into what we're trying to do, who feel they've got a personal contract with me about what their part of that leadership challenge and how they're going to operate is agreed. Mm. But also, I also contract with them about what I'm going to do to enable them to lead in a way safely, knowing that they've got air cover from me and that also I'm doing the things that I say that I'm going to do. And that's why we went through the, which we'll touch on, a process of me meeting with every sergeant and every inspector in the force in groups of no more than 12 mm -hmm. for a whole day, just having a discussion about how we're going to do this together in that first six or seven months. And it's about 40 days that I spent in groups of about 12 where we, we absolutely had some brilliant conversations, but we was able to have a conversation about why they were skeptical, why they were angry, what they think needed to change. And then we move on to how we're going to do this. The other thing that the staffs talked about was you've got to do change differently. Um, and I'm sure anybody who's listened to this who's been at the wrong end of a change programme that hasn't actually been done in the way that you'd expect it to be done, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, but change done well that involves practitioners really, Steve, does, does make a big difference. Mm, it does. And I mean, it's good to hear that you, you, you met with the people, uh, the groups of 12. Uh, what was that like? Um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I get my energy from conversations. Um, so I really try genuinely not to run the force from the office as much for my own mental health <laughs> as anything else. Um, if you sit in your office all day, you'd be unsurprised to know people will come and tell you that the f everything smells of potpourri. Um, and it doesn't, regardless of how well you manage to change the culture mm. and how well you try and tell people you do bad news, just tell me the truth, you won't really find out what's going on unless you go out there and ask. Okay, and if I was to say to you, um, how would you describe the organisational culture in Humberside Police today, what, what would you say? Um, a work in progress, still. Um, there's, there's, there's no end game here with this. Um, we've got 4,000 officers and staff. Does every single one of those officers and staff think that the force makes them feel valued, supported and listened to and they've got a voice and it's perfectly safe for them to put their hand up to their local managers and say, why are you doing that? I've got a different view. Of course, not everybody thinks that. But is there a critical mass of where people would say the culture has definitely changed here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's borne out from um, the staff surveys I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. 43 out of 43. Um, we've been first out of 43 for three of the last four years. Massive transformation in, in levels Definitely, of low yeah. morale. Um, back in 2015, 2016, 22, 23% of Police Federation rank members were saying they wanted to leave now or, or as soon as possible. Uh, it's down to about 4% now, again, the lowest in the country. So I think there's some good indicators of that. Long-term sickness is one of the lowest in the country, um, and our other staff surveys that we've done um, are also very good. 
but it's not perfect. Of course, it's not perfect. Um, so I would I, w- I would describe the culture, particularly as I mentioned to you before we started. We've just run our sergeants and inspectors boards, uh, and we had pass rates of seventy five percent for the sergeants at those boards who presented, and seventy percent for the inspectors, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Set of results about their readiness and how they are come in and understand what it is that we're looking for. And there's a really simple premise at the heart of the leadership offer in Humberside is that your primary responsibility for anybody who's got a leadership role in Humberside, from me right the way through to your police staff, supervisors and sergeants, is you take care of your staff. You sit down every month, face to face, non-negotiable, and you have a conversation with your direct reports. And that conversation should be 50% about them and what's going on in their lives, and I expect them to know who those people are, what's going on in their lives, what pressures that they're bringing to work, um, in order then to understand what their work performance, their ambitions and their aspirations are like. You can't possibly performance manage anybody without knowing their story, because how could you possibly then not know what's causing some of those issues? And we've we've made that a real non-negotiable, and that was a key part of my conversations with all those sergeants over Mm -hmm. 40 days and all those inspectors is there's not an organization in the world in the public or private sector that has outstanding service to the public or customers but the staff feel unvalued unsupported not listened to and don't have a voice that organization doesn't exist so we can't improve the service to the people in Humberside unless first our staff feel that they've got leaders who actually take care of them um, and that's the culture of the organisation. There's an enormous focus on well-being, but it's yes, we do stuff around occupational health and Oscar Kilo. But by well-being, it's understanding the most important piece of your well-being is your relationship with your sergeant and your inspector. When you see people who retire, and I ask them what are the best parts of their career, they normally tell me about a time when they worked for a sergeant or inspector who just made them feel amazing. Mm. Held them to account, but treated them like a person. And when you ask them about times when they were low, or they've had grievances, or they've nearly left, I can guarantee it's not chief constables, it's sergeants and inspectors. So the culture is very much around, I expect you to look after your staff. Yes, you have tough conversations, if needed, but you've got legitimacy with your staff then if you've treated them properly in order sometimes to then say, come on, that's not really good enough, is it? And this is why. If you've treated people the right way, those conversations are much, much easier to have because people will give you permission to have those conversations with them. Hmm. And uh, in relation to supporting your sergeants and inspectors, I, I mean, I remember a long time ago, the Chief Constable at the time of Devon and Cornwall, which was a force I was in, John Evans, insisted on when individuals were promoted, um, you got called up to the chief's office and he handed you your posting or your um, your confirmation and, and shook you by the hand and had a talk with you. You do that as well, don't you? You meet individually with people when they're promoted, is that right? Uh, individually or collectively. Um, I mean, the boards have just come out this week. Uh, one of my chief superintendents uh, has run those boards on my behalf because this is also about trusting the people below you and empowering other people to make decisions. And I do think that's a work in progress here, actually, mm-hmm. as well. We manage risk a lot every day. I still think there's some decisions that I've got to try and empower and make some of my middle managers feel that they are trusted enough to make decisions that sometimes get escalated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, everybody who's passed a board this week, I've personally emailed 
uh, and contacted with them, just the practicalities across a big force. Uh, and yes, they, they will get a certificate and they will get an opportunity during those first few months where we will have a, a day where we will go through what sound, it sounds quite cheesy when I talk about sergeant's pledges, but it's, but it's a certificate that a group of sergeants drew up to say, this is what we want to do mm. in order to turn the force around like you've described. Um, so they've come up with what's on there. And what's really interesting is, you know, whilst it could be quite cheesy, um, you go around the force and, and they're displayed on people's desks uh, and, and that's their yellow card. You know, if, if, you, if you tell somebody that that actual service you've given to that victim is not at the right standard and it shouldn't happen again and this is what you should have done, that doesn't make you a bully uh, if you do that in the right way. Uh, and the yellow card is, look, I'm giving my line managers the permission because I want you to have difficult conversations as long as you treat people with compassion and empathy and understanding, then you also know that the reason that they're not actually performing in that way is because there's something going on in their personal life that they're bringing to work with them. And let's be honest, if you're in the police for 20, 25, 30 years, life is going to throw a fair bit of crap at you. Mm. You know, you're going to you lose parents, you're going to go through divorces, you're going to have children, you might have other challenges in your health as well. It affects you. And, and, and when you have personal pressures and you have pres professional pressures at the same time, I don't care who you are, you will wobble. So it's really important that our supervisors and our inspectors and sergeants get to know their people mm. um, and give them an opportunity to do that. And that, that's been a key foundation for us in my view. Okay, um, and, and what, what I would say is, obviously the, the, the um, listeners here are people who aspire to promotion on the whole, you know, there's people yeah. listening in from all over the place, but what advice, um, Lee, would you give, or tips or guidance would you offer to listeners who are listening to this now, who actually aspire to promotion in the police service today? You've been through a few boards yourself, you know, what are your thoughts about police promotion selection processes? Does policing get this right? Um, I think it's an eclectic mix. That, that, that's part of the challenge for your listeners working in potentially 43, 44, 45 different law enforcement organisations and forces will take uh, sometimes a very different approach. But there are some universal things here that I think um, you can really sort of focus in on. Um, one is really understand what it is that your force is trying to achieve and what are the priorities. So every force will um, have our equivalent of what is the plan on the page. Um, what, what is the force plan actually saying? And in particular, what are the core values and behaviours that are listed in that, which they're saying that they want to see from their staff? Um, now, you can't see values, but you can see behaviours. So really focus on those behaviours, and in particular, what do those behaviours look like um, as a sergeant or an inspector? And then think about your own style of leadership, because you've got to be authentic to yourself. We're all very, very different. There's nothing worse than being led by somebody who you don't feel is being their true self. Um, it, it's, you, it's really disempowering for that leader. So how you will do it will be very different, but for me, thinking about how you bring to life the leadership behaviours within your force priorities, and then really simplify it down to what your role is. Your, your role is to get the best out of your staff. Um, so you have to think about how you invest and build trust with them. You also have to think about some real basics about depending what department that you're in. So for me as a patrol 
ex-patrol supervisor, for example, I, when I speak to my patrol sergeants, I, I expect them to understand what evidence review looks like, so they know what a good file looks like. I expect them to know what good golden hour looks like. I expect them to be able to sit down and go through um, their constable's workloads and help to then prioritise if they see that the victim code compliance or the service that we're giving to them um, is not actually going to leave that victim feeling that they're being treated properly. I expect them to be able to articulate examples where they've intervened in the right way when they see that something operationally is too risky to be left just for their officers to manage and deal with that. So examples of where you proactively listen to the radio and you've gone out and gone to the scene in order to assist that and be able to explain why you've done that. Examples about how you brief and debrief your officers at the start and the end of duty and the sort of things that you are looking to say and, and do to them in order to make them process and learn as you go through. And probably just as importantly, how are you going to work alongside you with the other sergeants if you're lucky enough to have other sergeants on your shift? I know that's not always the case in some forces, but also how are you going to work with your inspectors to manage performance on those shifts? Um, and that's got to be something that's done with the staff, not to them. So not league tables, but looking at the data, analysing the data, and then understanding about the individuals because you know them as a person, and then having conversations to try and understand what's going on. Um, and that avoids, in my view, a tick box approach. Um, there is a degree of osmosis around that, but if you come into a board of mine and can articulate that you understand what we're trying to achieve here, you can bring to life that leadership principle that the service that you give to the public is not going to improve if you don't treat your staff properly. But that high support, high challenge approach, if you can articulate how you do that, and you do it in a way that I can see is authentic and you can bring it to life, you're gonna get through our promotion boards. Um, but one of the key things that we say to our prospective leaders here is, I can teach you to be an evidence review officer, I can teach you to be a custody sergeant, I can teach you to be a DS or a DI, I can't teach you to care about other people. So if you generally don't care about the people that you're gonna lead, and you don't care about the service that you give to the public and you can't articulate to me how you're going to make sure every victim feels like we've gone the extra mile, you're up against it. You've got to be able to describe those two things because they're the outcomes that have to come from all those enablers. Mm. Um, and that would be my advice. Um, and our promotion process that we've just been through, as mentioned to you before we started, really high pass rate. Um, and the chief superintendent who led that promotion process for me was massively enthused by the people, really excited about the sergeants and the inspectors who are about to get promoted because he said he really felt they got it in terms of there's no point in creating an environment where everybody feels valued, supported and listened to and Humberside Police is a lovely place to work if the service we give to the public is crap. It's got to be both. But A, must become before B and he saw real as examples where people authentically could articulate I am going to take care of my staff but I'm absolutely also going to make sure that the service that we give to the public continues to improve because if they don't feel as victims that we've gone the extra mile they're not going to come back to us and we're going to tell another 20 people that we're rubbish mm -hmm. uh, and that is a bit of a gap in police at the moment around mm -hmm. our confidence is we are letting victims down in every force in the country.
And can I ask you a quick question, Liam? Forgive me, I, I haven't discussed um, this with you before, but I have raised it for in previous contests, con, um, podcasts. So in, in relation to promotion selection processes, what is your views on having an interview as part of that process? Because cops speak from all around the country and they say, well, look, we don't like paper sifts. We don't like competency application forms. So they create enough noise around it and uh, leaders, chief constables, remove it from the process uh, I think in some forces you just go up and add your name to the list for the boards with the, all the risks that that may entail. Um, and in others, um, they have uh, parts of the process, an interview, uh, and they've removed the interview from it. What, what's your view? You've obviously talked about the quality check and quality assurance that an interview, interview provides when you can sit someone in a board and listen to them and come across authentically. What are your views around interviews and, and not having them as part of a promotion selection process? In, in an ideal world, and I have spoken about this when I, when I took over, um, I wouldn't have uh, an interview process because we would have a very well-developed, mature, continual assessment where I was completely satisfied that there was real objectivity and I could trust that continuous assessment process in order to identify the leaders. The reality is, I don't think there's a force in the country that has that matured yet. Um, if you look at the different levels of scale of accuracy around promotion processes, interviews is not the best way of doing it. It's continual assessment. Um, but if you look at the moment about some of the challenges that are going on nationally, even around completing the MPPF portfolios and some of the backlogs in that, mm -hmm. there was a real strain in the system, which means that although I would like to bring in that approach, it would fail because we're not yet mature enough in terms of actually our culture or indeed our assessment processes to have the confidence that we would absolutely nail that. Mm. So it's a compromise at the moment. I would, I would love us to be able to get towards that continual assessment. If you passed your part one sergeant's exam, you've earned the right, in my view, through passing that exam, you've demonstrated your evidential knowledge to pass those questions around the law I then want to test your behaviours and your skills and how you will lead to make sure that you're not going to go out there and lead in a way that makes people feel unvalued, unsupported, unlistened to, for example. And you get that high support, high challenge mix, not just doing one or the other. And I'm sure we've all worked for people who do loads of high challenge, but very little support. I certainly have. But I've also worked for people who do loads of support and no challenge. And you're wondering around them quite frankly so it is important to get the both so yeah in an ideal world steve I, I i would be continuous assessment but i've got to be pragmatic and say that we're not mature enough yet in terms of our assessment processes to have confidence that 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 would be the case but that has to be the goal moving forward for definite okay th thanks very much for that um obviously you're getting lots of things right and obviously in the hmic uh, frs uh, inspection hmic inspections um in the peel reports um, you've done well across the board at, with outstanding, outstanding grades almost across the board there. So that's a, that's a real achievement and a big indication that lots of stuff is going right. You said it's a work in action. But one of the things you said um, to me was um, that these grades are a checkpoint and not a destination. Could you expand a little bit more for listeners on what you meant by that? Yeah, so we've got six outstanding grades and two good grades in the core peel inspections and then as you know some forces about one in five get a cdi which is a crime recording technical element and we've got an adequate um, for that one um, 
six outstanding grades, I, I, I know and all my staff know that outstanding doesn't mean you can't improve. Um, does every single person who come into contact or every single member of staff think everything is outstanding every single time? Of course not, of course it's not. I mean, policing's a very unpredictable, at times very messy business. Um, just when you think you've got everything lined up, normally on a Friday afternoon, something will happen. Something could happen today that changes us for the next two or three weeks around, around an incident. So um, it's really important that we recognise that even though we've got these outstanding grades, there will be people in our communities who have, who have touched Lincoln, Lincolnshire or Humberside Police or any other force in the country, whatever grade you've got, and that's not their experience. Um, now, there's no force in the country that's got an outstanding for investigating crime or responding to the public. Uh, we got goods for that. I think there's only about four or five goods in the whole country. And what's really interesting from my perspective is all those six outstandings that we've got, um, and in particular, we're the only force to date that's got one for around workforce culture, um, which we're really proud of. They are enablers in order for those two where that are only goods is what the public really see, mm -hmm. um, which is investigating crime and responding. Um, and I know that if, you know, if my, if my dad's car, touch wood, it doesn't happen, but if my dad's car gets broken into in Grimsby overnight, am I 100% confident that the service that he's going to get will result in ringing me up and saying, thank you, you're clearly doing a good job, Lee, or will he ring me up and say, what the heck is going on in your force? Honestly, 50-50. And that's not because my staff and officers are doing anything wrong. It's weight loads, it's volume, it's their need to have to prioritise to get to the ones that are causing more immediate harm. And there's no police force in the country that is not doing some sort of screening in and screening out process in order to identify those that solve. So there's a real issue there for us. The gradings are absolutely amazing from where we were absolutely amazing in you know we didn't get disengaged f from PPOG the special measures uh, group uh, until 2018 less just less than a year we was in there but it was 2018 in 2022 to get those gradings tells you that all those hundreds of sergeants and inspectors that I've met with are doing something right um, but there's still members of the public who would have seen me and the reports on the telly who would have gone, well, that's not my experience. Um, and we've got to be really honest about that. Mm. Um, uh, and that's what I meant about the checkpoint. There's still things that we've got to improve. Now, I know I am never, ever going to get to a situation where 100% of victims think Humberside Police does an amazing job. It's never going to happen because you'd need to give me another five, six, seven thousand 7,000 police officers to investigate every crime. Mm. But it shouldn't stop us trying to improve the service that we do, do deliver. On, on that point, Lee, in terms of um, you know, having 67,000, it's a, probably every chief constable's dream, but in terms of freeing up officers' time, one of the things that officers will be listening to, whether they're aspiring for promotion or otherwise, uh, is the fact of what you've done around um, your repeat calls for health service supports. Uh, and you've managed to free up a lot of officer time with that. Could you just cover that quickly for us? Yeah, I mean, again, that, that came from conversations about you know, one of the one of the key things that I, I keep saying to um, all leaders, and it's something that I try and practice uh, as much as I can, is look, if you're not solving problems for your staff, what value are you adding? So, 
are you just regulating then? Because our job as leaders is to understand how we solve things in order for our staff to give better operational policing. I don't do operational policing for a long, long time. So my only, my only value that I add really is to solve problems. Um, and um, the right care, right person came out of listening to the staff four or five years ago who said, boss, all we are doing is being, in our perception, uh, a social care system. 40% of our calls are not related to crime and antisocial behaviour. We are spending hours and hours and hours at assessment centres and mental health. Um, we are being called out by other agencies for concerns for safety when people have been just allowed to walk out from hospitals or allowed to walk out of voluntary patients. And you know what? When we find somebody on a section 136 in a public place, um, we're the ones who are doing the transportation into the health service or we're the ones who are sat with that person in custody. And quite frankly, if you fall off the curb and break your ankle, you're not going to end up in a police cell. Why the heck should it be any different if you have a mental health crisis? Um, so we took that away from our staff um, and we started to look at it as a chief officer team. And, and, and out came that was the idea of right care, right person, which is, okay, we've got to start saying no. What's my legal framework? Now my legal framework, um, you know, took a bit of a gulp because uh, you have to start saying no to things that automatically as a police officer in our force control room, actually you, you instinctively want to help with. And that's half the issue culturally because of our police can do attitude. But we started to implement it in, in four stages where we were saying, no, we're not going to that because we don't have a general duty of care where there is an absence of immediate risk there and then. Um, and lawfully, we don't have a general duty of care. So, you know, if a hospital rings up and says that a patient has just left and walked out and we're concerned about them, that's not my responsibility unless we think they are immediately going to cause self-harm to themselves or to somebody else. So we started saying no, but we worked with partners and we gave them a 12 month notice period on some of the stages that we did to say that we're going to start saying no. And at the same time, we sat down with about 2000 incident logs with mental health and NHS practitioners and people from the ambulance service and those practitioners with our practitioners went through with them. And because their job was also to take care of people, they were going through this instance going, can't believe the police are dealing with that, can't believe the police are dealing with that. And they were going back into their organisations and saying, it's wrong, the police should not be dealing with all these incidences, we, sh we should be dealing with them. So we did a bit of a pincer movement, tactically and strategically, and I gave 12 months notice and I didn't blink. Um, and we've gone from 80% um, of our calls that we deployed to, to about 32% now that we've deployed to. It's given us about 11 to 1200 police officer hours every month and we've used them. We've formed locate teams around missing persons to work in partnership to reduce the numbers of MISPAs coming from children's home. I'm sure many of people listening to this know that some children's homes and local authorities are privately managed, it is relentless. They've made massive inroads, for instance, and taken even more hours back. And what that's allowed us to do is get back to our core business. The public wants us dealing with criminals, giving victims a better service, and taking proactive action. And the force has the highest arrest rate um, in the country per thousand population, and it has the highest detection rate, if I use old language, because mm. I think they are detections, um, in the country as well. And we've freed up time for our officers to focus on what it is that 
actually they want to be doing um, and the feedback from staff is you listened um, the challenge now nationally is taking the right care right person project uh, and actually policing trying to help itself a little bit more in taking a more consistent approach and I'm, I'm delighted to see the College of Policing and MPCC taking the principles of this and saying actually we can help ourselves yeah do you know what the other agencies are under under resourced as well and government needs to assist us but let's let's make sure we can help ourselves as well a little bit and I think the project has demonstrated that okay Lee. well thanks thanks very much for, for all of your your responses to, to my questions both my planned ones and unplanned ones that have just arisen at the conversations just just a couple little little ones at, at the end just quickly uh, one is with the benefit of hindsight which is wonderful we all like it what would you have done differently and why can you think of anything yeah a few things um, I think changing culture took longer than I than I expected um, so when when we put the force back to a divisional model back with chief supers supers even down to the sergeants and inspectors who there was no dotted line management responsibility these are your staff you own them you care for them you're responsible for the service they delivered i thought because i'd grown up my policing career in that model that people would automatically understand what it was that i wanted from them they didn't so my initial frustration was look i put everything back in the way that i know works why isn't this happening the bit that we skipped was making sure that the people that were asked to complete these roles actually understood what was asked of them and they didn't so the learning that I, I took from that in future change is make sure you do a bit of a gap analysis around your training requirements don't presume just because you've got 20 years of experience in operating under that sort of model because that was the BCU model of policing that I came through the ranks in mm -hmm. don't presume that people in leadership roles who have not grown up in that model, who would perhaps have been in a different model due to austerity, where they don't feel they've got anything other than sort of thematic responsibility for a business area, immediately understand what it is to actually be responsible for a person and their performance and their well-being. So training needs analysis and then putting that in uh, in, in the first place. Um, and the second one is just thinking about your own personal resilience, in all honesty. Um, any of your listeners who are embarking on taking on the sort of privilege of leadership um, don't underestimate um, the impact if you really care and you want to be yourself um, it takes a bit out of you if you really care about the people that you um, have got responsibility for for leading and you really care about the service that you give it's going to get in there uh, and you need to think very carefully about what your strategies are in order to look after yourself um, and none of us are invulnerable. You know, I felt the pressures in the last six years. Um, I, I have sports, cycling in particular, cricket, um, helps me clear my head and gives me resilience. Understand when you take on the leadership role, how are you gonna look after yourself in order for then for you to look after other people? And please don't be thinking it's a weakness if you find yourself having a wobble because for me, that's a sign of strength. And one of the key messages that I've relentlessly and won't stop saying to my staff is if you feel that you're struggling please speak up it's not a weakness your career is not ended in fact I, I, I admire people who actually say sometimes I'm not ready yet or this is not for me or I'm struggling because it means I can trust them because they're going to speak the truth even about some stuff that actually is very personal mm -hmm. um, 
So that would be my two key messages really, would be about resilience and making sure that you look after yourself. Um, I've had wobbles in the last five or six years. I've had times where I think, you know, this is all feeling a bit too much. Um, and you draw upon the strength of your family or your significant others and talk about it and then whatever your poison is in terms of getting through it. Some people it's reading, some people it's talking, walking. Don't underestimate the impact of exercise. I, I find that really clears my head. I, I, I can feel at the start of going for a bike ride for a couple of hours like it's all too much and by the end of it my head's clear. Um, so that would be my two, two bits of learning really for, for me in the last few years. Okay, um, thanks for all of that. And my last, my last question, uh, Lee, is perhaps more of a personal one. What or who inspires you? Um, I guess my family, uh, in all honesty. Um, I, I'm very fortunate. I, 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 my career was drifting. I, I'd had six years uh, as a constable. Um, I took my sergeant's exam without doing any studying uh, and, and made the mistake of saying to my wife that I only missed it out by two marks, like I was expecting some sort of compliment. Uh, I didn't get a compliment. I, I got some very tough feedback about, well, perhaps if you put some flipping effort in, but don't waste your time, because I thought you were better than that. Um, so, you know, my family in particular, and um, uh, you know, keep me very grounded, in all honesty. I, I, I'm certainly not a gold commander at home. I'm not even silver, and I'm not even sure I'm bronze. <laughs> uh, and my family often tell me that I don't know how I run an organization because whenever I say anything at home, I'm normally proved to be wrong uh, as well. The other one was just thinking about the leaders that I've worked for and the bits that I've taken from them, uh, good bits and bad bits. Um, you know, um, soak up and have a look um, about the leaders that, that you've worked for. And in particular, think about how they made you feel. Um, what is it about when you're made to feel good about yourself and feel valued? How difference does that make to your work performance and what you like when you go home and interact? Because it, it, it transcends over into your personal life massively about how you're treated at work. And that's the leadership responsibility. And, and I work for some amazing leaders. I had, I had a sergeant who at six years on a, on a night gave me a bit of a talking to about, look, you need to pull your socks up as you're drifting. Do your sergeant's exams and do it properly. And have you thought about applying for what was then called the Accelerated Promotion Scheme at six year service? If you, even if you don't pass the enforced board, at least, at least your face has been known. Much to my surprise, after he gave me that talk and a bit of belief, I ended up passing and ended up before I knew it on that scheme, which was a real whirlwind for me but but that old sergeant who's now long retired and i'm still in touch with uh did me a massive favor because he took the time out to sit down with me in a busy night shift and give me some honest feedback but did it in a way that i knew that he genuinely cared but he was also telling me that i was coasting and not making the most of uh, of my career um and then i also ended up working for a couple of um senior officers uh, a, a lady called elaine hill um, who was a divisional commander at um at Lincoln and when I went to where as a newly promoted sergeant with this tag of being on the fast track course all of a sudden said to me my job is to make sure that if you ever find yourself sat in this chair in years to come you've got enough operational experience that you don't find yourself thinking what do I do now because you can't ring anybody at that level and ask them and, and that gave me a real grounding of making sure that the behavior stuff is massively important but make sure it's not it's not a race to the top soak up enough operational experience so you know what to do in certain circumstances uh, and, that, and that was really really good advice um, so they're, they're sort of big influences on me 
Um, and sometimes working for, for people who haven't made me feel valued, support and listened to, and I haven't forgotten how that made me feel, Steve. Mm. Um, and that's really driven my leadership here. I, I, I never want anybody else to feel how I felt at a couple of points in my career where I didn't want to come to work anymore because I really felt that I was being treated in a way that I could see it was affecting me inside and outside work. Um, so generally, I, I, I just have this touchstone where I don't want anybody to feel like that again. Um, the, the best part of that though, of course, is do you know what? If you treat people in that way, there's a kickback for yourself. It makes you feel good. Mm. And secondly, it improves the service that they're then gonna get and give to the public. So there's a business reason for doing that as well. But that I know that's where some of my drivers come from in terms of my leadership. Brilliant. Lee, thank you ever so much for sharing so many kind of professional and, and some personal insights uh, into police leadership. I'm sure it was a great amount of value for our listeners and uh, for all of you listening in. I will be back with another podcast shortly. And until then, take care and stay safe.